Hey, Michael. Hey. Hey, good morning. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? There. There. I can hear myself. Hey, it's great to be with you guys today. How many... I heard that some of you, did some of you not have power when you woke up this morning or in the night? Or a couple, there seemed to be some issues with that. It was a little bit of a crazy, windy day last night, but glad you made it here. Glad your alarm clocks went off. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, last weekend, we started a new series, like Michael mentioned, called Disconnected. And if you've been around the vineyard for some time, you've probably heard us talk about our four connects that are kind of our mission statement. When, um, what, where we want everybody who comes here and is a part of this church to feel like they're growing in their connection to God, connection to their purpose, connection to the church, and then connection to the community outside these walls. And last weekend, Michael kicked off the series, and he talked about the most important of those connections, which is connect to God. And it's from out of being connected with God that all those other three connections are really even possible, that, that we can even really grow in those other things that that's the primary one. Well, today we're going to continue in the series and we're going to look at one of the other four connects where we're going to look at connecting to our community, connecting to, to, to others outside of the church walls, like in our neighborhoods and places of work. So let me just pray real quick and then we'll kind of jump into this topic. So God, I just thank you that you long to be connected to us. That more than anything, you want to know us and us to know you. You want us to know who you are, your character, your, your desires, and your dreams. And as we explore today about the desire for, for us to be connected more to our community, would you just show us maybe in a gentle way where we might be disconnected, where we might not be as aware of that as you would like us to be. Be, be present with us. Speak to our hearts, minds, souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God has always intended for us to be connected to our community. God has always wanted us to be connected to our community. But throughout church history and some localized churches, there have been pockets of spaces or time where that doesn't really happen, where, where the church has, has taken kind of an isolationist mentality, uh, hunker down, kind of preserve who we are, build walls and hide behind them kind of attitude. But that has never been what God has wanted for us. And why is that? Well, it's because God is a communal God. You know, we talked about this last weekend, so I won't go into too much detail, but our God, one of the core theological beliefs of Christianity is that we believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that God exists in these three persons in this beautiful dance of community and always has and always will. But that he's also then in creation of, of the world, of creation of the universe, that he has extended that idea of community out to us and creating us and always wanted to be a part of us to be a part of community as well. And we see stories all throughout the Old Testament of examples of this where, where God handpicks Abram, who he later names Abraham, and, and he says, I'm going to make you a, a man of lots of descendants. And your descendants are going to be into a great big nation. And, but that, the purpose of that nation is to be a light to all the other nations, a light to all the other communities. And that you're supposed to be a place where people will be invited into the kingdom of God. They'll see, see your relationship with me and they'll want that. And they'll want to be in part of that kind of community. If you've ever read part of the Old Testament, you read about some of these, these people groups like the Canaanites and the Edomites and 
And we think sometimes of these people as being so far away or so distant, but they weren't. They were their next door neighbors. You know, these were also, you know, some of the descendants. These were like their cousins of the Israelites. You know, and while there were lots of battles and things that didn't go smoothly between these different people groups, God's ultimate intention was always that Abraham's family would be a light to that community, to those relatives, to those neighbors, that they would see that connection with God and want it for themselves. And a little later in the story of the Old Testament, because of the Israelites' regular disobedience to God, he allows them to be conquered by the Babylonians. And they get, the people of Israel get exiled and taken off to Babylon. And they go live alongside all these other conquered peoples, all these other races and ethnicities, people of all different cultures. It's really a, a melting pot of society. And what does God tell the Israelites to do? Does he say, just hunker down, hide behind walls, protect yourselves? No, he doesn't say that at all, actually. He says kind of the opposite. He says this in Jeremiah 29, verse 5 through 7. He says this, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Verse seven, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He says, seek and pursue and, and live in a way that's the best for the community. Want the best for the community that you live in. Because I've put you there on purpose. God says, I've put you there on purpose for a reason. So pray for the city that you live in. Think about that. The, the place where you live isn't just coincidence. God has put you there on purpose for a reason. He's put you in your neighborhood or on your road or your community for a reason, to connect and love on the people that you live around. And then, of course, we see in the New Testament that we would expect Jesus, the son of this communal Trinitarian God, to value and pursue the same connection with the community. And so most of the time, he spends a lot of his ministry out in the community and actually relatively little of it in the temple and in the synagogues. He's teaching and healing and performing miracles in front of those people out in the community to, to allow them to reconnect with God. And then he commissions his disciples, his followers, and us to do the same thing, to go out into the world, to go out in the community and do the same thing. But we don't always do this very well. We struggle with this at times. We're, in fact, often very disconnected from our community but we can be encouraged, I think, that we aren't alone in this, that the ancient people of Israel often failed. They, they often failed at this. They made it almost impossible. They, they added on all these rules and regulations that made it almost impossible for people to come in to the community. You know, and, in, and Jesus' disciples didn't always do it right either. They were at times hiding away in locked rooms away from the community, afraid. But God is inviting us to step out into the community. So, so how do we do that? You know, how do we do that thousands of years later? How do we do that? Why do we still find ourselves so easily disconnected? Well, I think we, get, we find ourselves so easily disconnected, just two words, bowling leagues. But that's not what you thought I was going to say, right? Go ahead and put that picture. 
you remember uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, when bowling leagues were like all the bee's knees, right? It was all, the, all what everybody was into. You know, there's popular, and I don't know if it was their cool matching outfits or their quirky team names they'd come up with. I don't know. But, but you might be thinking, what does bowling leagues have to do with any of this? Well, a couple years back, um, a best-selling book came out called Bowling Alone by a guy named Robert Putman. And it, the book really isn't about bowling. That's like an example of it. Really what it is, is it's a, it's a pretty dense and extensive research study of the rise and then fall of structured community living in America. It takes an, a, a long, like a lot of, gra- it's full of lots of graphs, charts, and studies looking at how after the Great um, Depression and then World War II, how in America, all these community service organizations just popped up and membership like just skyrocketed. And people were joining things like Rotary Clubs and PTAs and all these different organizations and bowling leagues, right? And, and what is it about a bowling league that makes it so great? Is it, is it just so invigorating to roll a smooth rock at 10 sticks? Did, could people just not get enough? I mean, I think bowling's fun. I enjoy it. But I don't think that's what it was. I think it was the time in between all the bowling that mattered. It was the talking and the sharing of life together. It was the eating and the drinking and the laughing and, and talking about challenges at home and talking about successes at work and doing life together that made it so popular for people. But somewhere in the 70s and the 80s, the popularity of bowling leagues started to decline. And then eventually pretty lap- rapidly, where to this point, they're, they're pretty much non-existent. And many service community organizations like PTAs and Rotary Clubs, they still exist, but they peaked in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and they have declined drastically since then. And why is that? Do people just realize that, yeah, bowling is just, there's more important, fun things to do than bowling? I don't think that's the case. The truth is that due to population growth over the last 70 years, uh, there's in fact many more people bowling today now than back then. They just aren't doing it in bowling leagues. In fact, many of them are doing it alone. What does that say about a 50, 60, 70 year trend? Well, maybe trend isn't the right word, actually shift. Trend implies like a short term lived thing, but this seems to be a big shift. In our culture in America, that we are becoming less and less involved in structured community organizations and living more and more individualistic lives. Are parents in, not in PTAs anymore because they just don't care about their kids' education? No, I don't think that's the case at all. So why is it? Well, of course, there's lots of speculation. It's probably a smattering of a lot of things. You know, people look at our busyness and our workload. You know, is that it? We hear this all the time, right? That we're just so much busier than we used to be. And it, that's sort of true. That's, it feels like it's true. But do you know in actuality that studies show that Americans have more free time than they did 50 years ago? The challenge is that our free time is less regimented and less predictable. For many of you, I know the days of working Monday through Friday, nine to five, are long gone, right? Many of you work weekends and evenings and um, nights. We are accessible to our bosses at home at all times via internet and email 
And many of you travel for work or you work remotely, which adds a lot of flexibility. And there are some perks to that. But it also makes it harder to commit to a regular Tuesday night PTA meeting or to volunteer as an assistant basketball coach on your kid's team on Saturday mornings because every Tuesday night and every Saturday morning looks different for you. None of them are the same. It also, I think, is is important to note that over 60% of homes now have both parents working. And always with single-parent homes, you know, the chores around the house still have to get done at some point. I mean, there's only so many times my kids can re-wear their underwear every week, right? It's, it's four, by the way, four. Uh, forwards, backwards, forwards, inside out, backwards, inside out. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. My wife's like, don't say that. That's not true. Don't call children's services on us. Uh, no, but the laundry has to be done eventually, right? It has to be done eventually. And so we have less consistent time that we can plan ahead of time to say, I can, I can volunteer at that because we don't know what our schedule is going to look like. Or I can help out with that community event because we don't know what our schedule is going to look like. So that, that is partially true. Uh, what about um, our mobility and commuting? You know, what does that look like? Well, it, it makes sense that frequent movers have weaker ties to their community. Right? The average American will move about 12 times in their lifetime, and that's rising. 12 times. It's harder to get deeply connected in community and to your neighbors if you and they are moving that often. Also, historically, if we look at the sprawl of suburbanization, as people moved outside of the cities to the suburbs, and I mean, we're feeling that now here in Sunbury. It used to be a small little village, right? Rural village, and it's quickly becoming a bigger suburb. Uh, that as people move further and further and further away from the cities, many people are moving further and further away from where they work. And so they're, the people that they work with are less likely to live in their same community. So the people you see at work, you're not as likely to run to at the grocery store. You know, and, and with bigger commute times, that means you're spending more time in your car. There's just a lot, a lot to that as well. And of course, we always blame technology, right? That's what we blame for everything nowadays, right? And technology, uh, well, that, it, it's a mixed bag. In some ways, we're way more connected than ever to others. You know, through social media, we know a little bit more what's going on in their lives. But in other ways, we're more disconnected from others. You know, I found one study the other day that said average Ohioan spends about four times, or I'm sorry, four hours a day on their phone, which we were one of the highest states in the country, by the way. It's four hours of time on their phone. And another study said that we watch about five hours of TV, which that seems high to me, but I guess it could be true for some people. But if, if I'm on my phone four hours a day, on watching TV five hours a day, I go to work eight hours a day, I sleep eight hours a day, that's 25 hours in a day. Something like that doesn't add up. I guess that you could be like me. I try to get my four hours of my phone and five hours of TV done at work. I just... Uh, multitasking, right? Um, but it, we might be more aware of some of the details about our neighbors and people in our community. We might know our neighbors got the flu or whatever, but we probably have less time to actually do something about it, to take them soup or run and get them some groceries real quick. And all these things, well, they, they do make it more challenging to, to connect with our community, to have every Tuesday night free, to commit to something 
the ultimate reason why we're so easily disconnected for our community really isn't any of these things. It's something much more ancient. It's something much more deeply rooted, and it's the effects of sin. It's the effects of sin. Michael talked about this a bit last week. The same thing that originally disconnected us from God has also disconnected us from each other, from each other and the people around us in our community. Sin is the culprit. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first disobeyed and sinned, they weren't just being disconnected from God. They were being disconnected from each other. Look what it says in Genesis 3, 6 through 7. Think about this while we read this. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them and they were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Last weekend, Michael talked about how Adam and Eve were disconnected from God, but how these effects of sins also disconnected them from each other. You know, the husband and wife, they've been walking around naked their whole lives, not thinking anything about it, not feeling any shame up until this point. And then they sin, and not only do they feel the need to hide from God, they need to hide from each other. They have to cover themselves up. And when God lovingly confronts Adam, and Adam turns to Eve, he says, she made me do it. Well, I'm sure he was sleeping on the, you know, the outdoor couch that night, right? That didn't go well. You know, we, there's disconnection between them. There's disconnection. But the sin, this sin didn't just cause a marriage dispute. It caused ripple effects that continued on and on and on. You know, the very next chapter in Genesis 4 is the story of Cain versus, and Abel. And they get in this dispute and Cain kills Abel. And what does God do? God sends Cain away. He becomes disconnected from the community. And humanity has been dealing with this stuff ever since. We don't trust each other. We don't, we, we blame each other. We hurt each other. We're selfish. We're greedy. We fight wars. We inflict genocide. We, we enslave. We abuse each other. And God is on this mission of showing us and wanting us to reconnect with the people around us in our community. Well, how do we do this? How do we get connected? How do we get connected or reconnected to our community? I I think it's pretty obvious. I think we need to start a bowling league, right? I think that's the answer, right? Let's knock down some walls, put some alleys in. You know, we got plenty of space to spare. Um, oh, that was a bad dad joke. That was a bad dad joke. No, we're not going to start a bowling league. We're not going to start a bowling league. You know, the things that worked in the 60s aren't going to work now. You know, the, the, the methods need to change with society, but the mission will never change. The mission will never change, and that's to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's to follow what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And what did Jesus do and what did he teach? He said he taught us to, to do it through love and good works. That we're called to love our neighbors in our community and, and, they, and do good works for them. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this famous story, I know a lot of you know it and have heard it, where Jesus, a man comes up to Jesus and asks him, hey, how do I guarantee that I get to live forever? You know, how do I inherit eternal life? You know, and Jesus turns the question back on him and he says, well, what does the Old Testament law say? And the guy thinks about it and he says, well, I guess uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he's quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus in the Old Testament there. And Jesus says, that's right, go do it. But the guy has to push it. He has to push it. And he says, but who is my neighbor? Who, who really is my neighbor? And so Jesus goes on to tell a story instead of answering the question. He tells a parable, a made-up story known as the story of the Good Samaritan. And we read in Luke 10, starting verse 30, this story. It says this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. When, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, yeah, go and do likewise. Do, do it. Go do it. What does Jesus teach us in this story about how to connect with our neighbor? It's, first, it's through love and then through good works. First is through love and then through good works. Through love. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He felt pity. He had compassion. Something stirred up in his heart. He had empathy. He, he loved him. He loved him. Jesus doesn't tell us anything about the person in the story who had been robbed or injured. We don't know if, if he and the Samaritan man knew each other. We don't know if the injured man was liked in the community or not. We don't know if he had some high-profile job or not. We don't know anything about it because apparently to Jesus, that doesn't matter. Apparently, the fact that that man was a man, that he was a human being, that that should be enough, that that should be enough. But the priest and the Levite, two very religious people, people whose job meant they were involved in the temple, that they were the, the, the church of the time, spent most of their time doing temple churchy things. You know, they, they actually went out of their way to pass by on the other side. And we don't know if, you know, blood made them queasy or whatever it was, or they just had too many important things to do, but they chose to go around and not take the time to help this man. And I think this brings up kind of an important side note uh, that I think one of the subtle dangers I see in my own life as a Christian is that I can at times get so comfortable with doing all these churchy things, of being in here, of you know, doing church things, doing, being at small groups, spending time with you all, that I can get so comfortable hanging out with seasoned church people and forget that Jesus is out there as much as he is in here. That I can get so comfortable with having both of my feet in the church when Jesus wants to teach me and all of us that we are supposed to keep one foot in the church but also have one foot out of the church, that it's, it's when we do that, then we are able to hold the door open 
to allow others to come in. Otherwise, how do, how do we have relationships with people? If we don't have relationships with people outside the church, how do they know that they're welcome in? How do they know that this is a place they can come and meet with God and connect with him? You know, that doesn't mean quit serving or volunteering. Obviously, we need lots of weekend volunteers like we talked about earlier. So I don't want to contradict what we're you know, saying here. But I, I just think for some of us, some of us, some of you are our best volunteers. You practically live here. We should probably start paying you. <laughs> but I wonder if some of you hide behind that a little bit. And God isn't maybe nudging you to say, yeah, keep doing those things, but maybe I'm wanting to push you and nudge you in a way of reaching out to your neighbors and people in the community outside of these walls too. It's, Jesus wants us to learn how to do both and and hold those two things in tension and balance. How do we do that though? How do we hold the door open and have one foot in and one foot out? How do we have pity on our fellow neighbor? Do we just muster it up, right? Do we just muster up authentic love and compassion for them? That doesn't work. We can't, we can't do it on our own. That, that doesn't live long. We can't force it. You know, it has to come from an overflow of our connection and love with God. It has to. It has to come from that overflow. You know, like we talked last weekend, if our primary connection with God and to God is happening in an abundance, then that will overflow into our interaction with others, with our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends. That's why the greatest commandment is to love God first. Because it's only second after that that loving our neighbor as ourself is even possible. All too often we hear this story of the Good Samaritan, we think, okay, yeah, I get it. So my neighbor is, is everyone, right? It's any, everyone and anyone. And that's true in one sense. But that often turns this idea of loving your neighbor into this faceless, hypothetical person that we often can overlook or walk on by. But what if it means also loving our actual literal neighbor? What if their faces, and they come to mind? What if in our crazy schedules, our long commutes, the answer isn't starting a bowling team, but it's learning to love our actual next door neighbors? I think that God is inviting us into a season of stepping into that. And I would encourage you, if you'd say, Andrew, yeah, but you don't know my neighbor. He's such a, I can't say the word in church. <laughs> he, he's so difficult. He's so challenging. We've had, we have a bad history together. We've had some run-ins together. I just don't know if I could ever have pity or compassion or even come to a place of loving him. Well, Jesus didn't say that you had to like him. He says you have to love him. There is a difference. We tend to like people that are like us, that have similar political views than us or similar interests as us. That's how we, this is the people that we like. But in fact, as we, as we read in this story, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other. They didn't. In fact, they, they are, if you study their history, they, they kind of hated each other. They were kind of enemies. And so no wonder Jesus chose to make the hero of this story a Samaritan. He wants to make this point. It seems that Jesus, if he's implying that this injured man was Jewish, that it's actually possible for his enemy, a Samaritan, to love him and maybe not like him. 
that that's possible. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop here just nearby. I was reading a book, a Christian book, actually on, on reaching out to your community, in fact. And, uh, and I was reading and studying it, but I realized after about 20 minutes, I'd read the same page like five times because I really wasn't reading it. I was just listening to what everybody else was talking about. I was eavesdropping on their conversations and creeping on them. And, <laughs> and, uh, and really, I was kind of thinking like, okay, God, is there anybody here you want me to talk to? Are there any opportunities to maybe invite somebody to church or have a conversation about God, something I want to get better at, grow in? And I was sitting there thinking that, and then this thought came into my head. And I, I, it was a really cool encounter with God, where I felt like God said to me and asked me this question. I felt like he said, Andrew, do you love these people right here, right now? Do you love these people? And I put my book down, which I wasn't reading anyways, and I looked around the room uh, at the, in this culture, and I looked at each person, and I thought, I don't know these people. Like, I don't know anything about them. I don't know what they're going through. So I don't, I don't think I love them, honestly, God. And then it was like, in a very firm, loving way, but gentle, he said, then you should go home right now. Get up right now, go home, and don't come back until you love these people. And I was like, I, got, I went out, I, I left, I got up, I left. I sat in my car and I just started to tear up. And I just started praying, God, break my heart. Break my heart for the people in my community. Break my heart for the people who live in this area. If I don't have the love that you have for them and me, then anything I attempt to do will fall short or feel fake. It'll feel like people, like people, people know when you're being fake with them, right? They know. They can see that. They can feel that. They can sense that. When people feel like you're more, uh, like you see them more as a project instead of a person, that's not going to go anywhere well. You know, but as we begin to learn to love people and get the Father's love for our neighbors and for the people in our community, they still might annoy us. <laughs> they still might blow your, their leaves into your yard, right? Or at work, they still might leave a mess at the coffee area that you got to clean up. But, but God might do something deeper in you. He might give you a love for them. And then... Once you have a love for them, watch as God will open up opportunities for you to serve them and do good works for them. Have conversations about God with them. Maybe invite them to here or to Alpha starting, you know, next week. I wonder if sometimes God prevents us from having certain opportunities with certain people in our community because we haven't yet grasped that kind of love for them yet. That, he, that we haven't asked for it yet. But as he gives us a love for Sam, our next door neighbor, or Julie in the office next door, God will give you opportunities to serve them through good works and meet them in their tangible needs, like, like the good Samaritan who went above and beyond. God will start to give us opportunities to love our actual neighbors even the ones that are kind of like our enemies. I want to tell you a story, but before I do, just, just a little disclaimer. 
the person in this story, I would consider this person a, a beloved friend now. We'll just call her Jane. But about seven years ago, my wife and I moved into our, our current home. We moved next door to Jane. And uh, we have this nice little strip of woods in the back. It's not huge, but uh, nice, some, some big mature trees. And I decided right when we moved in, I was going to go out and clear some of the brush out, cut down a couple of little saplings, make a path for our kids to be able to run through so they don't poke their eye out and you know, run into stuff. And I'm, it's like, I'm out there. We barely live there. Just moved in. And I'm out there cutting stuff up. And here comes my neighbor, Jane. And it, I don't think we had met up to this point. I don't remember meeting her prior to this point. And Jane comes out and she tells me, Hi, I'm Jane. I'm Andrew. It's nice to meet you. And I can tell right away she is not happy with me. Like she is just, the, the look on her face is like she's concerned or frustrated. And, and I quickly realize she thinks I might be cutting up stuff on her property. It's a little like unclear where our property lines are. They kind of angle funny. And she starts like saying, hey, we don't want to cut too much here. We want to keep this private and da 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 And I realize she's looking for like the property stake, this little yellow stake in the ground that shows where the line is. And eventually I get frustrated enough and I kind of don't want to deal with that anymore. And I said, are you looking for the yellow stake that shows where the property? She's like, yeah. And I said, well, it's, it's way over there. It's 10 feet over there. You're, we're clearly on our, my property right now. And I could tell she felt embarrassed. And to be honest, I, I get what she was like. If she really thought, I get where she was coming from. She thought I was, you know, cutting things down. But I remember going into the house and going to Sarah and saying, well, I just met our neighbor Jane and she's wonderful. <laughs> and and I, but I, I honestly, honestly, I started to just pray. God, would you help me? Would you help me love her? We're going we're gonna to live next to her for probably some good time now. How, how, how can I love this, you know, this person? We had great neighbors in the houses we lived. We moved from prior to that. I thought, man, we just, you know, you never know who you're going to get, right, when you move to a new place. And I just thought, oh, man, this is going to be tough. And, but over the years, little conversations by little conversations, we've had really, really good conversations with Jane. And she's become a good friend. And about a month ago, um, Sarah and I get this text. Her husband had a stroke, and he was in the hospital, and could we pray for them? What an honor it was via text to, to send out this good long prayer for him. She was so appreciative. And they had been in the hospital for a while, and he, he, he got out, and he's doing okay, he's recovering, he lost a lot of sight in one of his eyes, and uh, you know, struggling in other ways that you often do after having a stroke. But I realized she had just gotten home. This was early December. She'd just gotten home, and, you know, we have lots of big trees, like I said. And so she, the leaves in their yard had just gotten out of control. They just couldn't, couldn't handle them anymore. There's just so many of them. And so, she, so I see her out there kind of all by herself going through and raking up all these leaves. And I just felt this love come over for her. I said, we stopped what we were doing. Sarah and the kids, we said, let's go out, let's help her. I said, in fact, let me, I'm going to text all the other neighbors I know. Let's all go out and help her. And so we did. We, another family came over. We had seven kids, four adults. We're raking leaves. The kids are messing up all our piles, you know. But, but we did, and she felt so loved by it. And, you know, we got, you know, her husband and her sent us thank you cards. Thanks for being great neighbors. They, they sent us a, they gave us a Christmas gift. And the other family who came and helped us, 
they'd lived next catty corner from Jane for more, more than, longer than we had, and they'd, they didn't know each, they'd never met each other. They didn't even know each other's first names. What a cool opportunity it was to, to just bless them. You know, you may not have a bunch of time in your busy, irregular schedule to join a new community club, but you can make time to love your actual neighbor. And if we're all growing in this connection to God and being filled up with his love for our neighbors on the street that he has placed you on, then I believe we can start, that love will start to overflow from God into them and into lives. And we'll, we'll, we'll get opportunities to be like the Good Samaritan. Last thing I want to show you is this, I want to show you, if you want to go and put that chart up there, this is a really practical tool I came across a number of years ago that has been super helpful for me. I know some of you are note takers, you're probably like, oh, I got to draw this. We actually have copies of this on the info counter if you want to grab one on the way. It's really simple, okay? The middle is your house. That's your house. The eight boxes around it are your neighbors. Now I get, not all of you have neighbors that look like, you know, you may not have any, everybody on every side of you or, you know, that may not, this, you may live in the country and be spread out more than this, but think about the people who live in those spaces next to you. And the first thing I want you to think about is, do you know their name? That, we often meet our neighbors and then, I'm, I'm terrible with names, forget their names and then it's awkward. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? I have no idea. I can't remember it, right? 10 years goes by, you still don't know it. Do you know their name? If you don't, here's a hint. Go to the county auditor's website. Look them up. Like, that's what I did. Hey? But, but if you don't know your neighbor's name, it's really hard to love on them and have a conversation with them, isn't it? So maybe for you, the first step is just to get to know your neighbor's names a little bit or go have that awkward conversation where you shake their hand and say, hey, I know we've met a bunch of times. I, I'm terrible with names. What's your name again? Second question, go ahead and next one. Do you know any facts about them? Where they grew up? Where do they work? Things, not things that you can tell by looking at like, oh, they drive a blue Toyota. I see them going in and out there. You know, something tangible, something that small talk kind of things that helps have conversations with people, right? Those are the kinds of things we start with, right? And if you don't know this stuff, don't feel bad. Only about 10% can name their neighbor's names. Only 3% of people can do number two and tell facts about all of them. But the last one is this. Third question is, do you know anything deep and personal about them? Like stuff that you don't tell a stranger. Stuff that takes trust. That takes a sense of vulnerability. You know, like, do they hate their job and wish of doing something totally different? You know, are they, are they a practicing, you know, Buddhist? Are they, uh, I don't know, do they, do they struggle with depression? Deep personal things that we don't just tell everybody because it's in those kinds of things where we get opportunities to bring God into the discussion, invite people into that, like those deep longings that people, but that takes time. You know, if you think, look at that chart and you realize, I feel like a terrible neighbor. I don't know any of that stuff. I was feeling pretty good until you put that chart up there. Well, I, if, when, when I first saw this, go ahead and put the next slide up. This would have been my first chart. This would have been, we don't have anybody in the back. But that's all I knew. I knew Jane and that's what I knew about her. That was it. I didn't know anybody else around us. But over the years, as I've, as I've just been thinking about this and trying to be more intentional, go ahead and put the next one up. This is what I know about my neighbors now. Go ahead and put the next one up. You know, I don't, 
Pray for the Sam and June there. Yeah, they, they have terrible sports loyalties. Um, but, I, but I know some through it. I still don't know the one guy's name at all. So I, I, don't, I need to work on that. But the goal of this chart isn't that you get it complete, by the way. It's not like, oh, I can feel good once I know all this information. But what if God just wanted you to start wherever you're at? Get to know their names. You know, invite them over for dinner. You know, people like do this thing where they eat every day. You know, you can invite, still invite people over for dinner. People usually say yes to that. Get to know them. Start to have normal conversations. Would you be willing to do it for the long haul? For the long haul of saying, I'm not going to try to force any awkward conversation about God right now. I don't even know their name yet. But over the long haul, Lord, would you give me opportunities to get to know my actual, tangible neighbors? Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up?